Steve, back to the front. Why, thank you. Okay, let's uh, go to Matthew chapter 9, if you would. Matthew chapter 9. That's in the New Testament. That's right. Yeah, I don't know what happened to Samuel, but he, he, he left the building. <laughs> uh, we'll start with verse 9. As Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, in quotes, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So that's going to kind of be our little text here um, as we move forward. And I want to say something about Jesus. If you watch Jesus, we don't have a whole lot on Jesus. We have four Gospels. We've got some Josephus, Flavius Josephus has got a couple things. Um, there's really uh, a not, not a lot uh, covering Jesus. Um, I mean, most scholars believe there's, you know, Mark was the first gospel, then the others followed, and then Matthew and Luke share a source other than Mark at some point, which have been known as the Q source. Um, and they're, they're getting information from that. You can actually kind of buy the book of Q and go through some of Jesus' sayings there. And that's a whole movement, I think, sometimes. Uh, but there's that. And then there's some other trinkets here and there. But there's really not a whole lot. Um, but what we have, uh, when we look at it, we can get a general idea about how he thought and how he interacted with people um, just by watching some of these simple little dialogues. And here, uh, Jesus is just eating with a bunch of people, and apparently, they're the wrong kind of people to the leaders of the Jewish leaders, those in the temple, and so forth. Because you remember, you know, first century Jerusalem was a real hotbed. I mean, it was a political, politically charged. um, It was there was a lot of poor. I mean, Jesus was a peasant. Nazareth, like, was not on the map. You couldn't go to Google Maps and find Nazareth if you had Google. It just wasn't listed because it was like, it was less than a town. I mean, it, you know, a lot of people have studied this. I've read after them. And it was, they think there's less than 100 people there. Um, and very poor, like mud hut, you know, barefoot, 
no money, you know, kind of a town. And here's kind of where Jesus emerges, which is why everybody's like, nothing good comes out of that place. Are you kidding me? What, he crawl out of the sewer? I mean, that's kind of how they saw Jesus. Um, and so, but the thing about Jesus is, he wasn't reactive. He was proactive in everything he did. And so, you know, the influence that we need as a body of people, as human beings, let alone what faith we're associating with, but just as people, if we're going to have influence, you can't be reactive. You have to be proactive when we influence, when we're dealing with people, when we're talking with people, uh, when we're negotiating with people. So, um, you know, I told you the story about the Eckhart Tolle post I made on Facebook and the reaction, the reaction I got from many people. Um, it, it made me realize that as, uh, as men, I think sometimes, we're fighting a reactionary war with the world. We're, we're, we're in a battle of us against them. Okay, we're in this reactionary war of us against them. I don't know, I think I was reading this somewhere that we don't wrestle against people, flesh and blood. You see, but that's the very thing we're doing. That's one of Oprah's new age deceivers. But if you, would sit, if you ever sat down and talked with him, he would be like, What? Like Oprah, New Age, well, she's given $36 million to the poor last week. What did you do? You want to play that? <laughs> huh? I mean, it's just, what are, we, what are we doing? And so we can't fight a reactionary war. We have to make an active and a proactive difference so that it catches the attention of anyone and everyone. Because what we're doing is loving and caring, not criticizing and judging. And uh, uh, it's something we really have to think about. Now, we're taught um, through this, you know, pathological response that we keep giving to people uh, uh, to basically uh, infiltrate... then associate, encapsulate, and then indoctrinate. And then we're like, we did it, I got another one. And this is the mentality over the years that has developed. It's just like when I go to buy a car, you know, I, I'm, I'm a profiler, so I know how sales and influence and some of these things work. I know how people are. You know, they train salesmen to basically, if they see your car, they're to look in your car and to see if there's any signs of anything you do. Like if there's a set of golf clubs uh, in the back, then you would say, yeah, I'm going to be teeing off this afternoon. And, and now you're making an identity point with the person. And out of that identifying piece, golfing, then you can strike a rapport, build a plateau to walk into their life on. Or if they get, you know, 
baby on board, you know, you talk about your little baby. You know, you're trying to find pieces of association in order to get in. You see, but it's nothing more than a tactic to sell you the car. It, 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 it's, it's all about selling the car. That's the whole, that's why they're there. And when I talk to salesmen, I tell them the best way to sell a car is to not sell it. But they don't get it. You know, they're all like this in the windows. You walk up and they're like, and they're running out. You're like, oh God, here come the vultures. You know, you don't even, why are you there? Because you want a car. Why do they act like you don't? And they got to get you one before you get out of there. That's how they act. And what does it do to people? It creates an offensive posture. You see, it's, it's offensive. And so then we're put on the defensive from that. Well, what we're doing many times is we're creating uh, this defensive posture in ourselves. We're, we, we begin ready to defend, like we're pulling the swords out. And uh, it becomes a war to the end. And so it's almost like, I mean, talking to some people, it's like we no longer believe, I guess, that we're people that are hurt. We got habits, hang-ups, biases, prejudices. We've got all this. They say the sin of youth is passion. The sin of middle age, you know, is pride. And the sin of old age is prejudice. And so it's just like we have all these things, but somehow we're trying to make it like we don't. And so uh, we've, we've lost this connection with reality. Um, and so what ends up happening is, uh, this is some of the things we start saying, and I'll just use some Facebook things. I had to dump my Facebook account. It was just getting too, I couldn't even talk on it anymore. Um, so uh, I opened a new one. It's just kind of family and a couple close friends, but um, it was just getting too painstaking. I just like, my God, like, why am I have to, every time I go on, post something, I'm like, where's my gun? My God, they're coming. <laughs> you know, just everybody's going to straighten me out. You know, they're all, that's their job. Um, and so, uh, you know, anyway, so I was going somewhere, and uh, can't, I lost my train of thought when I went into that little Facebook story. Um, oh, so here, here's an example. I'm going to be taking a class through, online at Yale University in January on ethics. And so I mentioned it. I'm going to be taking this class. I'm real excited, the professor, yada, yada. And here's like it. Is he a believer? Like, okay, if he's not a believer, why are you taking ethics from him? This is the mentality, guys. You're taking an ethic. And I, I find myself, like, defending my little class at Yale on a line. I'm like, my God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't check him. He was a believer. My God, do you forgive me? Can I still come over? You see, and this isn't everyone, but this is, this is a prevailing thing that's happening. And so um, I remember when I was in high school, uh, this kid came up to me. I, it sticks in my mind like it was yesterday. He goes, hey, I got a pair of shoes like that. And I'm like, oh, my God, a friend. And he said, then my dad got a job. <laughs> he walked off. And I'm standing there in my little hush puppy. He's like, I mean, I mean, I'm 50, 
And I remember that like it was yesterday. It's just, it's just sticking there. It was like all I wanted was to be accepted. I got a real good one for you. In seventh grade, I'm thinking, you know, I've got to figure out how to get cool. Because I wasn't cool at all. Um, so uh, my dad, I didn't know my dad never dressed in style. I thought he's a man, he should know these things, but he didn't. So um, I thought I'm going to like steal his shoes and wear them to school, and then maybe they'll think like I'm like a grown-up. I don't know what I was thinking. So my dad's shoes were like, I don't know if you can think far back as like the Mike Douglas show. Um, they like, they kind of rode up halfway up your bottom of your leg, and they had the big heel and the zipper on the inside. They were kind of a black patent leather. Uh, so I confiscated those, got them on. They fit. My dad was a size 8, and so that's what I had at that time. And I go to school, and I'm thinking I'm all that. And uh, I'm sitting in homeroom. Oh, man, this is just hysterical. Uh, and the bell rings, and I'm the first one out of the hallway, out into the hallway, and I'm walking, and I, I, I think the teachers, the, the teachers follow me in their heels, and I turn around, there's like nobody there. And I'm like, dang, that's me. And this hall's echoing, like click, click. And all of a sudden, the kids start coming out, so I'm kind of walking, I'm realizing this is kind of drawing attention to myself, and all of a sudden I hear, hey, Sisler, you fag, what have you got on your feet? And the whole hallway, they bust out laughing. And I'm just like, that was not a good idea, Sisler. <laughs> I never forgot it. And then here's the other one I did. Yeah, I'm trying to fit in. I, uh, they had, we had show and tell in seventh grade. And so the other thing my dad did was make me take karate. Like that was going to help me and save me. You know, I had a yellow stripe like I can do a push-up. That's it. Um, <laughs> So uh, I've got my yellow stripe, I've got my belt, and I have it in a bag. So what I did was, so for show and tell, I had to say, I have to go in the bathroom and put my costume on, you know, so the teacher let me, and I come back in, and I've got this karate suit on. And so I'm sitting there, you know, in front of everybody, and I'm showing them my kata. You know, I still remember it today. It was like, you know, you're like this, and then you... And I'm doing this, and I'm going through the hall, and I'm thinking, they're going to get the picture that, you know, you don't want to mess with me. So I wore the karate suit the rest of the day. I'm like, everybody's going to know you don't mess with Sisler, right? Wrong. I'm wearing this karate suit, and in between classes, everybody's coming up to me, yeah, and they're kicking me and chopping me. The whole day, I'm being pounded on by everybody, like, taking up the challenge. They're just taking up the challenge, man. The whole day I get home and I'm just like, my God, I'll never do that again. I'm thinking, where am I coming up with these ideas? What, what was happening? Well, you see, I'm like everybody else, but, you know, I was trying to be accepted. I'm trying, doing all these things to get people to notice me, to like me, and um, albeit stupid things. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, just trying to fit. And everyone in the world is doing this. And Jesus sees these people, and he goes and he has dinner with them, and he sits down with them, and he eats with them. And he's, he's, he's basically teaching them, he's loving them. And the Pharisees, they're looking at this and going, they don't go to Jesus, they go to his disciples, and they go, you know, what is up with this? Why? 
doesn't he know? Like, your, your teacher is apparently clueless. Because here's what the Pharisees believed. They believed, and this comes from the, te- the Jewish teachings in the Torah. If you look at, let's say, Haggai, for instance. In Haggai, it tells you, basically, if a priest is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and he walks along, and that consecrated meat or the fold of his garment touches a dead body or something, quote, unclean, does what he touches become holy? And the priest answered and says, no. Well, if what is in the fold of his garment touches a dead body, does what is in his fold of his garment, does that meat become defiled? And the answer is, yes, it becomes defiled. And this is the thought pattern that they had. Because everything they did was associated with clean and unclean. Okay? Now, we all do this. It's a psychology that affects all people. If I said, ooh, would you get that dead rat, please? And you picked up that dead rat, how would you do it? You'd be doing it like this. Right? Why? Well, you don't want that getting on you. Right? We do this. We take the tip of the tail, if that, and we hold it as far out as we can, and we walk around with that dead rat going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, where do I put this? Somebody have a bucket? Right? That's how we are. You're not going to be like this. (laughs) Right? No, I mean, you can't even imagine that. You see, but this is what we do. This is how we think. We think because psychologically, there's a, there's a psychological theory. It's called core disgust psychology. In core disgust psychology, the main thing we try to do is keep toxins out of the body through whatever envelope the body has, mouth, butt, eyes, ears, wherever there's any kind of an orifice, we don't want anything coming in that is a toxin that could kill us. Okay? Now, the funny thing is, this isn't, you're not born with this, you're taught it, and every culture is different. How many of you had little kids? Okay? Spider. Right? They eat spiders. They eat poop. You know, my mom tells a story about my brother when he was two. He had one of those high silver horses on springs. And my mother comes into the room and he's got his diaper off and he's mud-pied the horse's face. It's in his mouth. It's on his hair. And my mother just walked out of the room like, my God, it's the funniest story. We always talk about it. He's gobbling that stuff down like it was a chocolate shake. He's two. But what does the parent do? Oh, my God! So the child starts thinking, okay, that wasn't smart. Whatever that was. It was good, but it wasn't smart. Okay? So we train and teach culturally what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. 
And throughout all of Jewish history, the sacrificial systems, the washings, the everything was all about purity and sanctity and clean and unclean and ceremonial actual rituals would be accomplished in order to make that known to everyone. So they basically understood that there are certain things you can't touch. Now it goes further. This is what psychologists call magical thinking. Magical thinking tells us that to touch an object of any kind, unclean, clean, whatever, to touch an object can infer and contaminate a moral fiber. So, in other words, if I touch that meat against a dead body, the meat is no good. It's no longer any good. You can't use it. Okay, the Jews in the first century, same thing. That meat was sacrificed to an idol last Wednesday, hello, so you can't eat that meat. They cut it off, they did their thing, they hang the rest of it up in the window, and it's there to buy. It's probably a little cheaper. And so, uh, yeah, that was sacrificed to Dagon yesterday. How much is it? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what it was like. And so there was a whole group of people, Paul had to write a letter about it, that were like, if you do that, you're going to hell. I mean, it was like, you can't do that. It's no. And remember, Paul's argument was based on logic and reason. Because these thoughts about magical thinking, about contamination and quarantine, remember in the Old Testament, you know, you touch a menstruating women, anything like that, what happened? You're quarantined. You're like a dog in the pound for 10 days. You don't go near that guy. Okay? Or don't do this or don't do that. I mean, it's full of it. And this is how the Jews believed. This is how they thought, it's how they acted, it's how they did everything. So in Matthew chapter 9, when they see Jesus sitting with sinners and tax people, they're thinking, we got to quarantine him. He's got to be quarantined. I mean, look at who he, look at who he's sitting with, famine sakes. Look at who he's, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's even talking to them. I'm not telling them, you tell them. This is what's going on. Because Jesus is just sitting with some people and having dinner. Because Jesus touches lepers. You see what's happening here? Do you see what he did? Do you see how revolutionary he was? He revolutionized their minds. He was doing it all the time. You read through the gospel narratives. You can see Jesus doing it all the time. Jesus, yes. Who sinned? This man or his parents? I mean, after all, he's born blind. I love Jesus' answer. Neither. Well, what? I mean, you, listen, you're sitting here and you're looking at me, but you have no idea. Because they believed that if you were born with an abnormality, either you or your parents screwed up royally. 
That's what they believed. And they come to Jesus. Who sinned? Him or his parents? I mean, look at them. Jesus goes, nobody. And they're like, wait a minute, I can't do the math. He, 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 Jesus didn't think this way. Jesus didn't believe this way. Jesus, matter of fact, he went looking for contamination. Jesus, the leper, stretch forth your hand. He, it says he touched him. Now, you have no idea about, I mean, Hansen's disease in that day was really, really bad. It had such a stigma. It, it does today. Leper colonies exist today. You, 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 you can't touch that stuff. And yet Jesus does. The woman, you know, too bad the Bible says this way, the issue of blood. Okay, the woman was like menstruating for 12 years. That's what was going on. Really bad stuff in the eyes of the Jews. But she touched Jesus. Okay, who touched me? I felt virtue go out of me. In other words, I did something. I was on on before I flipped my own switch with a menstruating woman. And then there's Jesus, you know, eating again, lounging around, eating, and here comes a woman coming in there, and they're like, oh, my God, it's Susie. What's she doing here? And she kind of lines down there next to Jesus. She starts crying, and she takes her hair, and she's washing and wiping his feet, and they're going, mm, 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 mm. this is how they're feeling. She's, if he only knew who was touching him, he'd be appalled. Well, if Jesus knew their hearts, he knew hers. But Jesus does nothing. He's just like, okay, little, little to the left, little to the left. I mean, he's antagonizing people. And it says he knew their hearts. He said, listen, you don't even have it within you to be hospitable, let alone loving. She loves me. You don't. You want me to write that in a notebook for you? This is how Jesus was doing things. This was radical. Because the disgust and contamination psychology that they were raised in, and it was hammered in, it was a part of all their system, their cleansing, their laws, everything had to do with everything. you got to wash before you. John the Baptist come along. Baptism, symbolism, washing clean, dirty, the whole thing. It was in all of them. It's a metaphor that works really, really well psychologically with people. Scientists have said the only species on the earth that can be disgusted is a human being. It's the only species on earth that can be disgusted and loathe their own kind. It's the only one. Dogs go right. My dog, I got a little beagle. Cutest thing in the world. I love holding him, patting him, but he'll just walk up to a big great Dane and put his nose right in the hole. And I'm just like, here comes the contamination, disgust psychology on me, right? Oh my gosh, you know. And then he wants to kiss me. I mean, they don't have it. 
you know, it's like, you know, he sees a little, you know, load there from another dog in the grass when I'm on the walk. You know, he doesn't just kind of go check that out. It, it, he, he sniffs it, but he's touching it. With his nose, he's, he's touching it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> it doesn't bother him at all. He'll jump up on another male dog. Oh, I thought you were Catherine. I mean, come on, think of it. Animals, they don't have this. We do. They don't have it. They don't have it. We have it. Well, <laughs> studies have shown and proven that discussed psychology regulates how we reason with our minds and experience people. It regulates how we reason in our minds and experience people. When understandings of purity, sin, salvation, holiness are regulated or influenced by disgust psychology, we unwittingly import a contamination-based reasoning into the life of that entire situation and into the church. Contaminated-based reasoning being governed by a unique set of rules often immune to reason and rationale. Well, what do you mean by that, Steve? Well, they did some experiments with some Christian folk. And they put him into a hotel and they said, homosexuals slept in this room last night, but they're gone now. And they had hidden cameras. They were sleeping on the couch. They would not go in the bed. They were on the couch. They would not use things. I mean, you go in the bathroom. Let's say we're on a men's retreat. And we're all sharing the bathroom, whatever. Uh, and... You pick up a towel, a cloth, and somebody says, oh, I just used that. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know that whole thing. And so this is how we are as people. But Jesus was trying to reverse that curse. He was doing, going about doing good, healing all the oppressed of the devil, it says. In other words, everything adverse. All that was, that which was adverse to everything everybody believed and knew. He was doing the opposite. And so it's fantastic to see what ends up playing out here. Now you have to realize something about disgust psychology. It's a boundary psychology. It's a boundary Psychology. If there's a dead body in a room, what do we do? You know, we cover up, we walk in. You know, this is how we do with things that are toxic, contaminated. Now, of course, that's smart. There's some things you don't want to touch or get on you or get in you. Okay? That, that, that's true. But the magical thinking that because somebody thinks, acts, believes, or does any particular thing that's out of line with your reasoning 
then what happens is we enact this contamination type thinking and then now it's us and them and this is what the Pharisees were doing. That's why when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, he found, he, he, he injected into the story a disgusting person. Because the Jews believed the Samaritans were disgusting. They were interbred. They were half-breeds. That's how, how they saw it. I saw on TV just a, a month ago. Um, no, it wasn't TV. I, I, this, this, was, this, was, this was me. I, I was driving, my, me and my wife were driving the car, and there was a little black boy in a diaper dancing on the yellow line in the street. And this was a high traffic area. Cars are just coming off this red light, blazing down the street. And I see them coming, and I see this kid out in a diaper dancing on the street. And uh, I pull over, I run over there, I scoop the kid up, I get him over there, and then I, I get in here, and I, it's these projects. I didn't even notice they were there. There's all these projects. It took us 40 minutes to find his mother. We're knocking on doors, we're talking to people. No, and here's this girl. She goes, oh, he's a half-breed, so he must belong to so-and-so. <laughs> I'm thinking, imagine if I said that. <laughs> you know, some people can get away with it. But that's what she said. He's a half-breed, so he must, must belong to so-and-so. And so, come to find out, that was true. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, but you see how, how we think. That's a half-breed, you see. Cher, in the 70s, wrote a song about it because she was part Indian. It's, 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 it's a deal. And so this is what happens. We monitor the openings and the borders, not only around our life physically, but there's also what's known as social disgust psychology, which is Matthew 9. Social disgust psychology. Why is he associating with disgusting people? Now, here's the problem. When we believe something is disgusting, that's disgusting. How do we think of it, act, act about it? How do, what happens? We loathe it. it it's, it's part of the makeup. If it's disgusting, then it's taboo, it's unlovely, it's bad. So the Jews saw the Samaritans as bad. As a matter of fact, if you remember in Luke, I think it's 954 or somewhere around there, hey Jesus, why don't you do like Elijah and burn all the Samaritans up? Just kill them all. And Jesus is like, what? <laughs> Can you imagine they just... You, we think they really knew Jesus. They're trying to know him. They were doing their best, but they weren't getting it, of course. They weren't getting it. They were entrenched in this. And John thought it was a good idea to kill all the Samaritans and burn them all like burning them to the stake. He thought that was a brilliant idea. And he thought Jesus was going to go, you know what, John? That's why I hooked up with you. I think that's what John's thinking. And John's like, you don't know what spirit you are of. Spirit, attitude. Attitude. Worldview. Attitude, worldview, 
value the spirit, the attitude, the worldview, what you value, your worldview is based upon what you value. I mean, I measure people's values for a living. I'll sit down with somebody and go, so how long have you been an agnostic? And he's like, how do you know that? And I can see it on the graph that I just produced after giving him some questions, and he answers some questions. I create a graph, and I can tell he's an agnostic just from looking at it. And so it's what we value and how we see the world, the lenses we look through, and this is what's happening. Now, the Pharisees end up making irrational judgments towards people because of the contagion psychology that they are in, then hospitality and friendliness become now impossible. It's impossible. Which is why he tells of the priest in this, in, in this, in this Good Samaritan story walking on the other side of the street. Why? Contagion. I don't want to be quarantined. I can't go near that. Now, here's what's happened. This kind of thinking through osmosis has seeped into us. Now, you say, no, I'm not like that. Yes, you are. So am I. It seeped in. I had, about eight years ago, somebody asked me to do a home group in my church that I was attending. I really didn't want to do the home group, but they begged me to do the home group. So I said, okay, I'll do the home group. It was at a friend's house, so it was next door, so that was easy to do. Well, I don't know how this happened, but this lesbian couple came to the home group. They walked in, like, arm in arm. And her name was Kathy. I can't remember the other lady's name. They looked like twins, but they weren't. They looked a lot alike. And they're like, you know, this, that, that, you know through conversation and just, you know, you re- all of a sudden you realize, you know, they're lesbians. They're a couple. And so somebody said to me, so what, you know, what, what the heck are we going to do about like, we're not going to do anything. We're going to love them like everybody else. So that's what I did. So I just kept doing my thing, and we'd sing and eat and sing and eat and do talk about something in the Bible, sing and eat. We did this for a year. Never, I told them, don't say a word. Just leave them alone. And they could come in. And then all of a sudden, about eight months in, the one girl, Kathy, comes alone. Where's, where's, your, where's your girlfriend? Oh, she doesn't want to come anymore. What do you mean? Oh, she says this isn't for her. I go, oh, okay. So she's going to stay home? No, we're, we're, we're breaking up. Oh, okay. So we kept going, you know, this and that. That was eight years ago. She's been married for like six years now to a husband, got a family, attending church, and living life. And I never said a word. I never brought it up to this day. I never brought it up. I didn't have to. Why? Because I thought it said God gives the increase. You see what I mean? God gives the increase. I plant water. Just keep watering the plant. Just water the plant, water the plant, water the plant, water the plant. Did you get them saved yet? Like it's my job? I don't know how to do that. Water, 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 water. And then all of a sudden, she just wakes up one day and goes, something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. And changed it. All right, let's end with this. If we're going to influence, we cannot see people as disgusting. Because if we do, we can't love them properly. We can't do it. It's not possible. Psychologically, it's not possible. 
Body language is 93% of communication. Words are 7%. Okay? So I could stand here, you know, and give you a bunch of words, and then after it's all over, I can come down and talk to you and shake your hand, and you know right away if I want to talk to you or not. I'm looking at my watch, I'm looking at the guy behind you who's standing, and I'm waiting to talk to him because he's a little more fashionable than you. We do this all the time. And everybody sees this and reads it, and everybody understands it, but nobody says anything. We just, we just do this pretending like no one knows. And part of my, when I work with people about communication and body language, I have to teach them that I don't care what you say, you're already saying it, what you're thinking with your body, and you just don't know it. Which is why FBI profilers have learned really well how to figure out if you're lying and things of that sort. So there's all kinds of cues that we give off. You can read it on a machine. It can measure it. It's not only in your, in your antics and in your white mouth and your spitless tongue. It's, 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 it's in your blood pressure. It's, it's everywhere. It's all coming out. But what Jesus did is he loved people as they were, not as they should be, and he didn't see anyone as disgusting. He touched anyone and everyone. He ate with people. He did everything. As influencers... We, I, I'll never forget this. When I was in seminary, if you want to call it that, um, years ago, 25 years ago, whatever it was, I remember attending this class on counseling. And the first day, I'll never forget what he said to me, or us, he said, now, as the Christian counselor, the first thing you're going to be tempted to say is, now, you were a Christian when you did this? <laughs> I, laughed, I laughed out loud. I laughed so hard. I, that's what you're going to be tempted to say, but don't say it. And I just never forgot it. I thought it was so funny. And so, you know, just talking and dealing with people, you know, they're, they're doing and saying and things and living a certain way and this and that. And, you know, we, if we're not careful, we see that as disgusting and contamination. And so what we want to do is quarantine them or rid them of the contamination or ourselves of the contamination. And so this is where we have to understand and, 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 and see Jesus. Now, uh, uh, part of um, being an influencer that's going to make inroads into people's lives is, 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 uh, is difficult when you can't overcome how somebody's living, what they're thinking, and all these kinds of things. Now, my wife is a, a professional organizer, um, and she started a new business this year. It's really getting rolling now. And I'll never forget this. I will never forget this. And I told her, we got home. She asked me if I could come with her, so I blocked out some time out of my schedule and went with her to help her because the room in this woman's house had four inches of cat litter and poops all over the rug. It looked like, when I got there, it looked like somebody had dreadlocks, cut all the hair off, and laid it out on the floor and wove a pattern. The cat hair was that thick. And the dust was so thick in the bathroom, you couldn't use the bathroom. It looked like it was never used. I don't even know what she did. There was uh, uh, nail polish bottles, like this many, on a, on a counter this big. They were just, the whole counter was nail polish. And there was so much dust on the nail polish, you went, and it was like shaking a bag of flour. And it was from the catches scratching the cat boxes and creating this powder. And it was throughout the whole house. And she had clothing in a closet piled this high. And my wife was cleaning this closet up for this woman. This woman was very overweight, um, very sweet, um, and, you know, embarrassed, of course. And, but she, she was overwhelmed by it. 
and my wife had an ad in a magazine, so she called her, and my wife went in. <sighs> this just chokes me up every time I think about it. I was outside on my phone doing some business because I had emails coming in while I'm over here trying to clean up all the crap with a vacuum. And I, I go in the house, and here's my wife in this bedroom that there, that's going to be her bedroom at some point. And it was disgusting. And they're both sitting there on two chairs, and my wife's pulling out these clothes and shaking them in the dust. It's just, my wife goes, now, this is really cute. Why are you getting rid of this? Why are you getting rid of You're going to keep this. You've been giving too many things away. And she's pulling, and there's poopy undies, and it stunk, and it smelled like mold. And she's pulling out, and she goes, now, these you can give away, because this will really help. You can open a store. It's amazing. And this woman's just feeling comfortable and free, and she's encouraging her, and she's, she's walking through this whole thing. And I looked at her, and I thought, that's what Jesus would do. That's exactly what Jesus would do. He would sit there and go, now, these shoes are really cute. I can't believe you're throwing these out. You should keep these. Clean them up. Have you even worn them yet? She had so many clothes in there, she didn't even know she had them. And I get incorporated as well. I'm in there with special antiseptics. I'm spraying all her shoes, and I'm wiping them and cleaning them and setting them up. And she's got me dragged in. I'm like, yeah, these are cute. I wish I was wearing these. And she's laughing. And we're working through this, and we're just loving her. And I, I, I can remember the feeling of getting past the disgust barrier and being in her house. And here's a person, a, a dear woman, living alone in this trap and just in there. Where is everyone? Where's her family? Where is everybody? And she's just in there. And I said to my wife when I got home, I said, boy, have you found your niche. I said, you have found your niche. She goes, I absolutely love it. And I said, that lady's a sweetheart. She says, yeah, she is. What's she doing? If anybody in this world, in this whole world, is going to influence that woman, it's Anita. It'll be her. If a conversation comes up, if something happens, she's there. She's safe. Jesus made people feel safe. When somebody starts talking to you about evolution or, or something that they believe or they don't understand, rather than saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Have you ever read the Bible? Or da, da, da. Make them feel safe and say, you know what, I've thought that. I've, I've thought that. I can see where you're coming from. Have you thought about this? And you have a conversation. You're not defensive, pulling your swords out, looking for your, you know, your McDowell book you know, to set them straight. You, know, you make them feel safe. And you say, well, that's a real good, that's an interesting thought. That's a real interesting thought. I had a teenager come to me in the youth group I did years ago. And he came to me and he goes, I don't even know if I believe in God. I said, I hear you. And his wife, his mother went. <laughs> she about lost her head. He said, yeah, I've been reading this book. I go, who wrote it? And he told me, oh, yeah, I've read that. I read that book. You have? I'm the youth pastor. Yeah, I read that. Have you read this one? It's worse than that one. He goes, what? I said, oh, yeah, this will really knock you through a loop. Now, you, you know, if you, you can read it if you want, but I don't know what it's going to do to you, but it's pretty good. And he's like, yeah, I want to read that. His mother came up to me later and goes, what are you doing? 
I said, I'm giving him the present he's so desperate to unwrap. But you keep making it taboo, which is why he keeps wanting to go in there. I said, let him open the box. If there's no gifts in it, he'll figure it out. He's smart. It wasn't but a month later she came to me. She goes, you wouldn't believe what Max did. I said, what? She goes, he gave it up. He just gave it up. I said, that's because you didn't see him as contaminated because he was looking at it. You know, the hardest people to deal with in faith are smart people. The easiest ones are the stupid ones who don't search out anything. They take it all in. They just believe hook, line, and sinker and do nothing. Paul the Apostle said, the Bereans, now there's somebody to think about because they go and search and seek and see everything I'm finding out and saying if it's even true or not. They, they think. And so don't condemn people for thinking. That's what your head is for. It's not just so your body can have something to carry around. It's what we have it for. Jesus gave us a brain to use. Use it. And encourage people to use it. Don't discourage people in thinking because what has happened is the church has become a conspiracy to the world. Because the last time they let the church think, they thought the world was flat and the sun revolved around the earth. When we gave it all to them. And then they burned the entire library of Alexandria and got rid of everything worth anything and the entire planet that goes back beyond that time. It's all gone because all the Christians thought it was contaminated. We could have found the cure to cancer, for heaven's sakes. Who knows what we would have found in that library? But it's all gone because everybody's like, ooh, that's all bad. You see, I want to encourage you to be influencers, that you go out and you make a difference in people's lives, but at the same time, you love them for being just people, inquisitive people that are trying to find their way in the world just like you. And when you do that, you'll have people lining up to talk to you, calling you, emailing you. Hey, I have an idea. I was thinking about this. I don't know who else to talk to. Why? Because you're safe, like Jesus was safe. So all the people that weren't safe with the Jews went to Jesus. And so that's what God's called us to do. As men, we've got to make our families safe. Some of you have kids. They don't know what they believe. They're thinking, so what? Encourage them. Talk to them. Have conversations with them. I've had to go through that with my children. My son is so smart. He does math in his head, and the teachers think he's cheating. And he tells the teachers, why are you mad at me because I'm smarter than you? And I'm like, Cohen, that's not smart. <laughs> Don't say that. But you see, my daughter wrote me a letter. I'll close with this. She wrote me a letter for Christmas one year and then gave me a DVD that I loved, a movie that I loved, the DiCaprio movie that I really like. And um, I opened up this letter. She said, the greatest gift you've ever given me is the safety and freedom to think for myself. That's the greatest gift you've ever given me. And she said, if I've ever done anything in my whole life that ever made you think you weren't a good dad or did a good job or loved me, I would want to die. I got that from her when she was 19. And I have this rapport, and they can go through things, and I'm there with them, whatever it is, I'm here. I'm not making them feel like I don't want to go home. I don't want to go home to that house. I'm not safe there because my dad's a Christian. So I just want to encourage you guys. Influence is about making people feel safe, loved, and special. And then God and his precious spirit who can make the, the world as we know it can take care of the rest. Amen? All right. That's it.
Well, there's good news. Steve is going to be speaking here tonight at 6 o'clock, tomorrow morning at 9.30. So if you heard what Steve had to say tonight, you want other people to get to see what this guy's all about, you know, bring people back. We've got nursery, we've got child care, all kinds of fun kids stuff going on during church. So please, bring someone else back. They're not going to be used to this kind of church, but that's okay. A um, couple housekeeping things, the lanyards, if you could just drop them on the registration table on the way out, I would appreciate that. And um, I want to thank uh, Pastor Darrell for supporting what we're doing here with Men of Valor and for opening up church, allowing us to do this this weekend and to have Steve as, as part of this. And so uh, if you'd come up, and I'm just going to have him uh, close in prayer, and then after that, uh, you guys are free to go. Steve will be around if you want to talk to him, um, but feel free to hang around and talk with one another. Can we say thank you to Mark and his team for uh, putting together such a great event? And um, it's not without a lot of effort and work, so thank you, Mark. And um, we're going to do our best to get um, the seminar, uh, the audio portion of the seminar online uh, by tomorrow night or Monday morning at the latest. So if you know anybody else that would uh, benefit, men that would benefit from hearing this, you can let them know that's available online. Uh, and if you want to go back and revisit it, uh, that would be good as well. Um, let me just say this as, as we go. We, we've heard some radical things about Jesus because he's a radical guy. And the thing I love about Jesus is that he believes we can be like him. So a lot of times we think, that, I don't know if I can do that. He says, yes, you can. He called 12 of the most unlikely guys in the entire world, and they changed the world because at some point they caught the vision that I can be like him. And we, we have a master who says, I'm going to take your life, and I'm going to conform you into my image. So don't fight it. Be like Jesus. Would you stand and let's pray. God, today as men, we honor you. We realize who we are and who you are, and so, God, we submit to you, to your will, to your way. Jesus, we thank you for, for coming in the flesh and walking this earth, showing us how to live, for saving us from our sin, from transforming us, changing us. And, and so, God, we just, we don't want to fight anymore. We want to be like you. And so, God, I pray that you'd give us courage, boldness, influence, God, that you'd rearrange our minds, our hearts, our thinking, and uh, Jesus, ultimately, whether it be to our family or at work or at school or to this world, we want to be like you because the world needs more of you, Jesus. So, Lord, take us and use us as we walk out these doors, and uh, thank you for the encouragement that we received today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming.